Inshallah, everyone is doing well. We're going to continue where we left off with the wise sayings of Imam al Junaid, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And uh, so let's begin. Bismillah. قال الإمام رضي الله تعالى عنه ونفر الله وياه بعلومه في الدارين أمين قال أبو القاسم أضر ما على أهل الديانات الدعاوي أضر ما على أهل الديانات الدعاوي So what does this mean? This means that the most harmful thing for the people of let's say, some sort of religious observance is that they make claims. The most harmful thing for people who are serious about their relationship with Allah is that they make claims. So, if we back up a little bit, one of our teachers will always say, beware the maker of claims. Beware the maker of claims. And I think that the world that we're living in is one that is filled with many, many claims. You know, this person claims to be this, and that person claims to be that, and we justify it for any number of different reasons. You know, because of some sort of, uh, you know, marketing thing, or because we need to do this, or because we need to do that. There's always some justification, but in the end, uh, the maker of claims is one has to question it a little bit. What does this mean? This means like someone who says. Oh, you know, like I'm the one who's uniquely qualified to deal with this issue Or I'm the, I'm the only one who can do this Or I would never have that kind of problem Or me, I don't have those kind of issues These are all claims, right? I've never, been, I've never had a problem getting up for Fajr MashaAllah, this is a claim She would never have So the problem with claims is that What happens normally when someone makes a claim? They're tested at some level, right? Someone says, I'm the one who can do this job. And you say, oh, alhamdulillah. You know, you give them the job. And at some level, when they're given the job, there's a test in them taking on the job. Right? And it becomes clear whether or not they were the one to be able to handle that job or not. So what happens when we make claims in our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that oftentimes we are tested. And uh, the people who are very sincere in their relationship with Allah they don't make these claims because they don't want to be tested that's of course part of it but number two is that why would they need to make that claim because they whatever they have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they have this is different of course than like maybe if you're like I don't know you're applying for a job or something and you put down your qualifications you know there's not a claim in that but the idea is to think about the things that I say and the way that I position myself and the way that I talk about things Am I making claims in it? And uh, so this is a big thing in the, in the works of spirituality. It's actually, it's a, it's a really big thing that you don't, you know, someone who, and I've said this before, like I very rarely have met people of knowledge who've intru- introduced themselves to me as a sheikh. It just doesn't happen. You don't like meet the person 
and they say, oh, I'm Sheikh so-and-so. Even if we hear it, it's, it sounds kind of funny, right? Like, I'm Sheikh so-and-so. I'm, I'm Al-Alama Al-Kabir. <laughs> I'm the great scholar, this or that, or I'm this. You usually don't hear people do that, right? They'll introduce themselves by their name. Only one case I, I can think of, you know, immediately where someone introduced themselves to me like that, and they turned out to be a fraud. SubhanAllah. Like, it's the only case I can think of. And I remember when he introduced himself to me, and I was like, this is strange. Something doesn't feel right about this. And then, subhanAllah, years later, it turned out there was a whole fiasco and everything else, right? So, we should just, you know, we do what we do in our relationship with Allah. We don't need to make claims about it. Allah protect us from making claims. Alright, next. I've kind of chosen them this time. I chose shorter ones. I chose ones that, inshallah, will work better. So we don't end up lost in my nighttime reading. Uh, so, second one here is Ta'dim al-Dunya. He says, Qala Abu Qasim, Ma ra'aytu ahadan a'adham al-Dunya faqarrat aynahu biha innama taqirru biha aynu man saghraha wa'arada anha. He says, I never saw somebody who a'adham al-Dunya. You know, a'adham like from a'adim. You make something big, you make it meaningful, you make it everything that matters, you know. He says, I never saw anybody who did that to the dunya and their eye was settled by it. You know this like that the coolness of someone's eye or that their eyes, you know, it's used oftentimes with our children, with our families, things that we love. You know, that when, when you see that thing or when you experience that thing, you feel a level of tranquility with it. Right? So like the Prophet وسلم, he would say that uh, he would say, the coolness of my eye was made to be in prayer. And the dua that was made is that, you know, make our children you know, make our children this coolness of the eye to us. But he says that I've never seen someone who glorified this life, the material things of this life, and they achieved that level of calm and tranquility and happiness and joy and everything else, right? They didn't achieve that. Only the one, uh, the only person who had coolness in their eye with regards to this life is the one who made it not into much and turned away from it. And you see this, subhanAllah, you see it. So, you know, and I think we've kind of got into this before, but we, uh, and, and I probably like got off on um, the little story about Sheikh Ali Saleh. You know, Sheikh Ali who uh, spends his life in ilm, you know, and he just lives behind Mr. Al-Azhar in the neighborhood behind Azhar. His home is very small. Um, he has basically nothing. And every conversation was all happiness and all joy and everything else. He doesn't care for any of this stuff in the first place, you know. And you see, you see people who are like that. You see people who, you give them a little bit of clothes to cover their body. You give them any type of food. You give them some simple shelter some safety, they're perfectly happy. This is all they want from this life. Is that all the other things don't matter. You know, the right color clothes, not the right color clothes, this and that, so on and so forth. It doesn't, none of that matters to them. It's very simple. You see that certain countries have these qualities. So sometimes in the old timers you see these qualities. You might, probably some people can think about it with their parents and with their grandparents and stuff like that, you know. I can think of family members who, they'll literally wear the same like two, three shirts for 20 years. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Like, it would be the same shirt for 20 years. It would be like the same lunch for 20 years, right? 
because they just don't care like it's not it's not that they're like trying to be you know some people they do that kind of stuff and they're trying to be like that you know like i'm connected to these things i'm trying to limit my kids some people it's just like supernatural to them they don't care you know they just like eat doll every single day like, why don't you want some meat why don't you have some like, i don't care you just eat the doll i'm fine have some rice have some things people some so what happens is the person who has accustomed themselves to living in this way they're the only kinds of people that find tranquility in this life like in, in with regards to the dunya why because it doesn't matter what you give them give them a big house they're happy you give them a small house they're happy you give them new shoes they're happy you give them old shoes they're happy you give them simple food they're happy you give them complicated food they're happy so because they made all of those things so small in their eyes then they're able to have happiness in them but on the other hand the people who all they want is something new all the time then they'll never have this happiness they'll never have it it's a very it's a very profound wisdom actually I don't know, you know? You think about it in concepts of like, someone at the, at the uh, one of the kids came to me recently, and he's like, what, what phone do you have? And I was like, I don't know, the other kid said it's this. Like, I, you know, you buy it and you forget. <laughs> he's like, the other kid said it's this. And he's like, oh, when did it come out? And I was like, I don't know, like last year, it was just check on the internet, like when did it come last year? He's like, how come you didn't get the new one yet? I'm like, is it broken? And I'm shred, man. <laughs> like, is it, is it not working, or is it is it working? If it's working, it's working. Like, why why would we get the new one? But like this idea of I always have to. There's always going to be a new one. There's always going to be a new thing. I have to get this new thing. Then of course the person is going to be miserable because there's always something else to look towards, right? So this is a very very profound wisdom that he's giving us here. All right, I'll do a long time. Next one he says Qala Ibn Qasim. من فتح على نفسه باب نية حسنة فتح الله عليه سبعين باب من التوفيق ومن فتح على نفسه باب نية سيئة فتح الله عليه سبعين باب من الخذلان من حيث لا يشعر. Now this one is about good intention. He says the person who opens the door of good intention for themselves, then Allah will open for them seventy doors of tawfiq. I'll go through the whole thing for them and come back. He says, and the person who opens the door for themselves of a bad intention, then Allah will open for them 70 doors of failure, basically the opposite of tawfiq, failure, from where they can't even imagine. Okay? So what is, what is the idea? The idea is we can interact with the world with any number of intentions. My intention could be I want to be more powerful than this person, I want to be better than this person, I want to have more than this person, I want to whatever, right? Or the intention could be other things. I want to serve people, I want to help people, I have to, you know, so on and so forth. So he says the one who has this good intention, then Allah will open for them 70 doors of tawfiq. 70 doors of tawfiq. Oftentimes 70 is used as just a, like to indicate plentitude, right? It's a number to indicate plentitude, so... Open for them 70 doors of tawfiq. Okay, alhamdulillah. So basically, they make this good intention and all kinds of opportunities open up for them. And the opposite side of it is a person makes a bad intention. Could be that everything is laid out in front of them, it could work fine. But they have a bad intention. So even though everything was supposed to go a certain way, the bad intention is what then closes the doors. Because there's always this interaction, right, between the physical and the spiritual. So sometimes the spiritual, if, if it's corrupted, it will close doors in front of us. And sometimes if it's good, it will open doors for us. So he says, open 70 doors of tawfiq and will close. And, and the other side of it, if you have a bad intention, will open 70 doors of misguidance. And just like failure, basically. You know, everything they do, they, it, it, won't, it won't work out. 
I was saying subhanAllah because I asked uh, Well I started now I was sitting there the last while I was explaining it in my head I was thinking should I share this or not And then I just started so now I'm kind of I was talking to a teacher recently And I was asking him like How do we make decisions between different things You know It's like a number of things that you could do You could put your effort in this way Put your effort in this way, put your effort in this way. How do you make a decision which way to go? And he gave a very simple answer that I thought was really profound. He said, if you just make your intention that you want to serve the people, then whatever it is that you choose, Allah will put barakah in that and He'll bless it and He'll open up the doors for you. And that's it. So he said, just focus on how, don't focus on this or that. Or He didn't say all this part. This very short-winded person, Hafidhullah. But so basically, focus on serving people. If you focus on serving people, you focus on what they need, not what you want, not what you think would sound good, not any of that stuff. Just focus on serving the people. If you focus on serving the people, then Allah will give tawfiq. <coughs> Next one, he says, "Hakikat al-shukri." أن لا يستعان بشيء من نعمه على معاصيه. The reality of of gratitude, the reality of gratitude, is that one does not use anything that they have been given from his blessings in the way of disobedience. Okay. So, what is the reality of gratitude? The reality of gratitude is Allah has given me these things. If I'm truly grateful that Allah has given me these things, then I can only use them in the way of something that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I can't use it in something that's forbidden, right? Something that is sinful. One of the interesting things about this is it opens up uh, a gateway, so to speak. Can you, can you put this in my office? Uh, what was this? It's the same cookie you had, isn't it? Masha'Allah. What do you do? So one of the things that's interesting about this, it opens up a gateway for um, looking at things a little bit deeper. So what do I mean? Faru. Because Sophia had the same one, I have to hear now. Okay, what do I mean? This is one of the reasons why I believe that it's very, very important to make our starting point our own tradition. Okay? You'll see what I'm getting at in a second. So there's two, there's a number of ways you can do things in life, right? One way is, you hear a bunch of things, and then you listen to them, and you kind of assess at some level, like, is this okay in my religion or not? Right, so you, you hear it, it all comes from somewhere else, and then you see it and you assess, does this fit with my religion or not? It's fine, it's one way to do it. One of the problems with that way of doing it is that it kind of assumes that we have the capacity to really assess that properly. Right? We, we don't always fully have the capacity, because like I've said before, I give you this example before, right? That if you were to have two flashlights, 
hold one flashlight in each hand, hold it like this. And you point it at a wall. Okay, let's assume the wall is like halfway through the rugs. And you put a wall there, and you can make it so that those two flashlights hit the same spot. So you could look at it and say, say you're on like the other side of the wall. You could look at it and say, okay, they hit the same spot, it's okay. But the thing is that if you were to take that wall away and move it back like 10 feet, they wouldn't be in the same spot, right? You understand what I'm saying? So maybe they hit, they hit at some point and I saw, okay, here, this looks like it's okay. But I didn't realize that down the road, it actually wasn't gonna be okay. And this is a big issue in how we assess a lot of things. And uh, you know, is this okay in Islam? Is it not okay in Islam? It becomes very one dimensional, you know? So we might not be able to tell like, okay, this actually, it might lead to something else. Another way to look at it is to say, I believe and I trust that my religion has something serious to offer me in terms of how I look at the world. So I'm going to make my starting point actually Allah and what he says in the Quran and what the Prophet says and our spiritual tradition and the life of the Prophet and everything else. Okay? Why am I saying this right now? Because gratitude is very popular, right? This idea of like gratitude, you know? You have to have gratitude, you have to, I'm going to have a grateful mindset, I'm going to, gratitude is expansive and all this other stuff, right? Which is all actually true. It's, it's not untrue in and of itself. But look at what his definition is. Does it fit? It kind of fits, but it kind of doesn't fit, right? Because what is he saying? He's saying the reality of gratitude is that you do not use anything that is a blessing from Allah in an act of disobedience to Allah. Is that the definition that other people are using? Other people use gratitude, they'd be like, oh, alhamdulillah, you know, not alhamdulillah, but I'm so grateful, I just feel so blessed because I got to choose which kind of beer I was going to drink on Saturday night. <laughs> you know, honestly, right? Like a lot of people would do that. They'd be like, I'm so, they're sitting on like a beach in Mexico or somewhere and they're like, oh, I'm just so grateful because I had this opportunity to like spend the whole weekend drinking and partying. You know, that's a lot of people would think, and then, you know, from a purely secular sense, someone would look at it and be like, good job, you exercise gratitude. But for us, would that actually technically be gratitude? It's not gratitude, right? Because the baseline of it is off. The baseline of it has to be, these things that I have, they are blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they are responsibilities from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Very important also. So they say that this limb, like I have this limb, I have this hand, I have these eyes, I have this ear, I have the tongue, I have some money. These are responsibilities from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how do I show gratitude for that? I show gratitude for that by using them in the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if I use them in disobedience, even if I feel grateful about it, it's not gratitude. Okay, because the congruence, the proper congruence wasn't there. Okay? So this is, I think, a very, uh, and, and again, it gives us a window into this. You know, uh, there's layers to things. Sometimes we think things are okay at one layer, but they're not at the other layer. So foundationally, we have to sometimes dig a little bit deeper. I don't want to open Pandora's box, but at some level, Pandora's box is already opened. But for example, this is a huge conversation, an important one in the realm of psychology and counseling and therapy and stuff like that, right? So. You might have methodologies or techniques that have proven to be somewhat effective 
for people in various circumstances. But what is the philosophical underpinning of it? I might have to think about it for a second. All right? So the philosophical underpinning might not fit. So I have to, I have to, we have to think about it. This is you know, a bigger topic, but inshallah, people who are working in the field are doing a good job of that. May Allah give them tawfiq. Next one he says, <coughs> interestingly, kind of related. Al-insanu la yu'abu bima fi tabi'ihi, innama yu'abu idha fa'ala bima fi tabi'ihi. So he says that the human being is not blameworthy for what is in their nature. It's kind of a tough translation, but mm, it's kind of nature, but I don't want, uh, let's say like their, their default disposition, maybe. Someone is, they're not blameworthy for what is in their default disposition, but they are blameworthy if they do what is in their default disposition, okay? So maybe someone, it's like a, you know, this is, Ghazali will talk a lot about this. So maybe someone, their default disposition for probably some sort of combination of their genetics and their experiences in life and the things they've been through, they end up, they're 15 years old and they have a anger management problem, you know? So their default at that point is that they have this kind of like fiery anger situation. They're not blameworthy for that in and of itself. They're blameworthy if they act on that in a way that's not acceptable. Right, or someone else might have uh, this default to um, constantly comparing themselves to other people and being jealous towards them. It's very common in the Muslim community, if we're honest, right? For various reasons, you know, people always looking at other people and be like, "Well, why does that person have that, and why do they have this, and I don't have this, and so on and so forth." So to to have that leaning inside of the person is not in and of itself what they're blameworthy for. What they're blameworthy for is that I act upon that. So now like, I really just don't like that person. And they talk to me, I turn away from them. I don't give them the time of day, all these other kind of things, right? So these are now issues that they're blameworthy for. Um, it doesn't mean, uh, the reason why I didn't want to use nature is because then someone might think that this thing is static in the person, right? So like they, had, they were born and they have this anger problem and they're gonna have the anger problem for the rest of their life. It's not necessarily the case. It's probably some sort of combination of what they were born with and what they experienced in the certain situation that they're in. And probably, you know, in many things, they can probably have some sort of impact on it with time and effort and, uh, you know, some level of riyadat and nafs and so on. Okay. Am I good so far? Alhamdulillah. Feels like a stadium, you know. It's like the better version of night soccer when we were kids. Night soccer with Imam and Junaid. Next one is very beautiful. It's very beautiful. He said, "La yakunu al-arifu arifan, hatta yakuna kasahabi yuzilu kulla shay." So he gives this example. He says that the Arif, the Arif is a very, and we have different mustalahat, we have different terms in Islamic history 
and studies for different uh, kinds of people maybe or experiences that people have like the alim the alim is the person who's knowledgeable okay they have some sort of knowledge and ideally they're also their internal knowledge and their external knowledge go together and so they are an alim and an arif but an arif is someone who knows Allah okay so they might not have like theoretically you can have someone who doesn't have super extensive knowledge book wise but they really know Allah uh, I think in Egyptian they have a nice statement about this, don't they? The Masriyun might have it. Wahid Ya'raf Rabbina or something like this. Right? They have something like this. Like, there's a person who knows Allah. I'll say it about someone like this person. They're like a person of taqwa. They're a person of worship. They're a person of... of they, they really... You feel from them that they live their life with Allah. So you say, this person is an arif. They know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a different, it's kind of like another level. Um, so he says the arif isn't truly an arif until they are like the clouds who give shade to everyone. Right? So what he's saying in the, this, they have to be like the clouds and they have to be like the rain. So what he's saying, when the, when the clouds come, the cloud doesn't come and say, you know what, I like this person. And I don't like that person. And I get along with this one, and I don't get along with that one. And that one's from the ethnicity that I like, and this one's not from the ethnicity that I like. And wait a second, I'm not going to give shade to the black one. I'm going to give shade to the white one. The clouds don't do this, right? The cloud comes, and the cloud gives shade. The rain comes, the rain doesn't say, you know, I want it on this line, I don't want it on that line. The rain gives to everyone. So he says that the arif, the, tr the one who truly knows Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, isn't like that until they are like this. Like a cloud that gives shade irregardless and like rain that waters irregardless. And this is something that kind of actually sometimes it throws off people when they deal with big sheikh. You know? They might deal with a, like a big sheikh and they see that this sheikh is talking to like someone who's known to be corrupt. And they're like, how can the sheikh be talking to this person? And they don't get it. The sheikh's talking to this person because the sheikh's job is to take care of the people irregardless and to try to make them better, try to make them better. And this is why sometimes like when these kind of shaykh make um, administrative decisions, it sometimes becomes a little bit complicated. Because like for example, the, the, the murabbi can't always be the qadi, right? So the qadi is like the judge, right? The judge has to give the rule. This is right, this is wrong, this is the punishment, this is how things are going to be run, this is how it should be ordered, so on and so forth. But the, the person who's trying to like give tarbiyah to someone, and they're trying to mentor them, they're trying to help them grow, and so on, they might not like look at it in the same way, right? So sometimes when these roles get mixed, this is when you start to have sometimes difficulties. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us. But in any case, he says that they have to be like this. They have to be like the cloud that gives shade to everyone and the rain that gives rain to, uh, that, that comes down on everybody. He continues in the next one, he says, لَأَنْ يَسْحَبَنِي فَاسِقٌ حَسْنًا أَحَبُّ مِنْ أَنْ يَسْحَبَنِي Qari oftentimes in the early usage refers to a person of knowledge, okay, or a person of righteousness. 
So he's saying for me to keep the company of a corrupt person who has good character is more beloved to me than to keep company with uh, a person who's looked favorably upon but they have bad character. It's an interesting statement, huh? It's more beloved to me to be in the company of someone who's not good but their character is good than to be, than to be in the company of someone who's respected and everything else but their character is bad. It's interesting, huh? You've probably seen it, you know? Sometimes you find people who, like, they're really just not the greatest of people. But they have really good adab. <laughs> they know how to treat people properly. They know how to speak to things properly. And then maybe they have some sort of issue. I don't know. Maybe they're whatever they have their issue with, right? And then you have someone else who's respected, who's looked upon with, with, with you know, people look up to them and so on and so forth. But when you interact with them, their character is bad. Like, subhanAllah, this is just, it's not, it's not good, you know? So he says, it's more beloved to me than to keep the company of the one who has good character. And there's probably a number of reasons for that, but there's two that I can think of right away. One of them is that we are affected by the character of the people, of the company that we keep, right? So even if the person maybe has some issues on the side, if with us they have very good character, then at least inshallah we'll have good character. We'll know how to deal with people and so on. The other thing is that if a person has good character, they'll limit their harm. You know, even they might have an issue, but they'll limit their own harm out of, out of their deference to good character. Whereas someone else, if they have bad character, even if, you know, their harm will keep coming. They'll just keep being harmful. Everything, you know, everywhere that they go. You see this actually a lot with sometimes Muslim kids and Muslim parents and stuff. And they're like, we just want our kids to have Muslim friends. <laughs> well, you know, like, mm, yeah, I won't give that example. <laughs> but like, sometimes the Muslim friends might be the ones that get them into the issues. Right? Like, I, I know many cases like this. But there might be a non-Muslim friend who's actually like, their character is really good. You know, they behave properly and they're very nice and they're very polite. They don't get involved in bad things and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's, uh, character is very important. I want to see someone who has good character. They talk to their parents properly. They deal with other people properly. They, they know how to speak. They know how to carry themselves. They have good handwriting. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to become obsessed with handwriting. Like, seeing kids' handwriting now, it makes me crazy. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like, you know, you just sit and write several hundred of thousands of pages until you fix this problem. Because, like, you know, assuming you don't have some sort of disability or some sort of reason why the handwriting is not good, people should have decent handwriting. Should be able to read it. Should be, there should be some decency to it. Shouldn't be offensive <laughs> when you see it. Allah forgive us. All right, Abu Qasim said, ما أخذنا التصوف عن القال والقيل لكن عن الجوع وترك الدنيا وقطع المألوفات والمستحسنات لأن التصوف هو صفاء المعاملة مع الله وأصله العزوف عن الدنيا كما قال حارثة عزفت نفسي عن الدنيا 
فأسهرت ليلي ليلي وأضمأ وأضمأ نهاري. So he said, we did not take tasawwuf. We've gone over this before. You know, subhanallah. I, when we started doing this whole majlis thing, I was a lot more patient. I've, no, I've noticed among myself, maybe like four or five years ago, I was a lot more patient on these kind of things. I'm becoming less and less patient, I've noticed. Because like the more you read, the more you see, the more you get really kind of angry, to be honest. So like this, this phenomenon in the Muslim community of like the word tasawwuf, and as soon as we hear the like you hear the word tasawwuf, you hear Sufism, and it's like the boogeyman, you know? Doesn't matter, all aql is thrown out. Like all intellect is thrown out, all thought is thrown out, all reflection is thrown out. It's just like, oh my God, he said Sufism. Run for the hills. Like, you know, it's, it's unbelievable, really. Like, it's, and then you read, like just read a thousand years of biographies. Read generation upon generation of people's biographies. And you will see, without exception, people didn't have an issue with the Sawaf. I make this very clear. The Muslims did not have an issue with the Sawaf. The Muslims had an issue with people who claimed to Sawaf and did extreme things. And that's where the commentary is. And it usually comes from the people of the Sawaf. So like the, the, it usually comes from the people of Sufism. They're commenting on saying like this person claimed that they're a Sufi, but they do crazy stuff. You know, they do this and they do that and so on. Of course, everyone has a problem with that. That's not the point. So we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, right? To use the American proverb, we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So what is Anjunaid saying? And remember, Anjunaid is very early. So Junaid is saying, we didn't take the sawaf. And he gives you like the true essence of it. That's why we're reading this. It's like, what is this actually? What, what is it really? Is it like some sort of weirdo talk and flowery things and so on and so forth? Sure, that's, you know, some people might do that. But in the end of the day, it's sharia, it's behaving in a certain way. So he says, we didn't take tasawwuf and qal wal qil. He said, qil wa qal is like, people said this and people said that. He's saying, we didn't take this, this thing that we're calling tasawwuf. It wasn't something that we learned from books. That's what he's saying. It's not something we learned from books. Like someone said a beautiful thing and we all said Allah and then all of a sudden we were spiritual people. <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's, not easily, that's not what this whole thing is. We took this thing as hunger and leaving the dunya and cutting ourselves off from things that we were accustomed to and things that we felt were nice. That's literally what his statement says. So he says, what is, where did we get this? We got it from hunger, leaving this world and cutting ourselves off from things that we thought were, we were used to and we thought were nice. That's what he says. This is where we took it from. He says, this is like, it's jihad. If you want to actually see what, what is the spiritual path about, the spiritual path is about jihad. It's about saying, you know, he said, I took it on hunger. You know, this, is a, this is a real issue. Like, people should be hungry. And I don't mean starving, but we should be hungry. It's okay to be hungry. Like, Omar ibn Khattab, he said, we're a people, we don't eat until we're hungry, and when we eat, we don't eat our fill. As he said, this is, we're a people who are like this. You want to know who we are? We're a people who we don't eat unless we're hungry, and when we eat, we don't eat our fill. This is a strong statement, right? He said, we took this knowledge, it came from hunger, it came from tarqid dunya, you know, we left these things, like this wasn't what we were about. 
We weren't about power, we weren't about money, we weren't about controlling things, we weren't about being in charge. This was not what we were about. We were about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We left and that's what we took it from. And so the third thing that we took out, al-ma'lufat. Al-ma'lufat is like something you're accustomed to, right? So someone, you look at, for example, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what did he used to sleep on? It's basically a reed mat, right? They say when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to sleep on it, he would wake up, you could see the imprint on his body. The thing that he's sleeping on, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. To the extent that one of his wives, she saw it, and she was like, kind of upset about it. So when he was gone, she went, and she, they got a new mattress. And the Prophet sallallahu he came home, and he slept, and he was like, he didn't, look, he came home and he slept. And then he commented on it. So it's like, he's not paying attention that much anyways. <laughs> you know? And he commented on it, he said, what'd you do to my sleeping situation? There's two different narrations, actually. There's two of them. One of them, she folded it twice. Like it's normally laid out, she like double folded it. He's like, what'd you do? She was like, I double folded it. He's like, don't do that again. You know, I didn't, I didn't, well, I wasn't able to pray as much as I normally would be able to. And the other one was, they went and got the mattress and they brought the mattress and he's like, what is this? And they're like, this is a mattress, we felt bad. So-and-so gave it. And he's like, look, these things of this world, they're for the kings and the rulers, they're not for me. This is not what I do. This is strong, you know? It's, it's not saying you can't have a mattress. That's not the point, right? <laughs> the point is that there's things that we're accustomed to. It's okay to go out, go without them sometimes. You know, someone's accustomed to eating three meals a day. It's okay to eat two sometimes. Someone's accustomed to sitting on a nice couch. It's okay to sit on a nice, not nice couch sometimes. You're accustomed to riding in a comfortable car. It's okay if your car is not comfortable. Just leave these things sometimes so you can toughen a little, be strong a little bit, right? Like Sayyidina Omar said, "Radhiyallahu be tough a little bit because the blessings don't last forever. Be tough a little bit because the blessings don't last forever. So you cut these things out. And then he said, Wal-mustahsanat. Mustahsanat are the things that we enjoy, we like them. They're really nice, they're really beautiful. We cut those things out too. Yeah. This is what he's saying. This, this was his spiritual path. It wasn't like, you know, some of these things that people say sometimes. He said, because tasawwuf is purifying one's relationship with Allah. Purifying their interaction with Allah. So if you think about this at a deep level, what is it saying? It's saying that if I'm attached to all these other things and I can't do without them, then there's something that's like, it's getting away, it's getting in the way a little bit in my relationship between me and Allah. So we get rid of these things. We break these habits, you know? Ibn Atala, he said, it's a play on words in Arabic, it doesn't make as much sense in English, but <clears throat> when, when, when something's a miracle It breaks the norm It breaks the adah breaks the adah So it's a miracle Right But also the things that we're, we customarily do That's also our adah So he says How is it that you think That you're going to break the norms Of human existence And you can't break the norms of yourself Like you have to Break these things a little bit And uh, You know it's good. And then he said, because the foundation of all of this is to turn away from this worldly life. As Haditha said, I, I turned away from this, I turned myself away from this life. So I stayed up at night and I stayed hungry during the day. I stayed up at night and I stayed hungry during the day. I'll do a little more. <coughs> <coughs> Next one he says, someone asked him, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, about the hidden dhikr. 
that is not known by Al-Hafadah. It's not known by the angels who are there to protect, right? We have angels that protect us, we have angels that write things. So what is the, what is the dhikr that's the, the dhikr, the remembrance of Allah? It's a secret between the person and Allah. And uh, even the angels don't know about it. And he said that it is the one that happens in the heart and is concealed inside the self. And the tongue doesn't move about it and the limbs don't move about it. And we talked about this before. Actually, I only put it there to show that when we talked about it before, there's a foundation to it. You know? So he says that he was asked, what about this? Is there, is there a type of remembrance of Allah that even the angels don't know? He said, yes, there is. So when it's in your heart, your tongue doesn't move and your limbs don't move. It's between you and Allah. It stays in your heart only. Nothing else. And he said uh, that. It had, and then he said the evidence of that is mentioned in the Quran. That your Lord knows that which is hidden deep inside of their hearts, and that which they say out loud. So we have that possibility actually to um, uh, to make this kind of dhikr in our hearts. Nobody knows about it. Not even the angels know about it. And there's a there's a sweetness to it. Everyone should try it. You can try it right now, nobody would know, except Allah. In another statement, in, uh, Ibn Qasim, he said, At-tasawwuf, this spirituality, is Al-khuruju min kulli khuluqin dini Wad-dukhulu fi kulli khuluqin sani So again, he's talking about, what is, what is this tasawwuf? Tasawwuf is what? He said, it is to leave every lowly character trait and to adopt Every elevated character trait. That's what it is. I don't know what it is. That's what it is. Figure out something to focus on. Focus on that. Every good character trait, adopt it. Every bad character trait, get rid of it. That's the soul. You know? Before we talked about this idea of claims. In this one, he gives you a secret for... How to uh, a secret for us? How to rid ourselves from the problem of making claims? And this is also tells us why making claims is such a big problem. It tells us both at the same time. He said, Abu Qasim, rahimahullah taala, من نزمة طريق المعاملة على الإخلاص أراحه الله من الدعاوي الكاذبة. That the one who who uh, maintains the path of mu'amala, in this case mu'amala what he's referring to is that how one interacts with Allah. So they're trying to maintain a path of interacting with Allah that's very good and very sound. The person who does that with sincerity, then Allah will free them, or Allah will give them uh, respite, or they, Allah will protect them from these false claims. Right? So what does it come to an end? Someone who's making a claim, what are they really doing? May Allah protect us. But what is a claim really doing? It's saying, show me some sort of attention for this thing that I'm saying right now. But if the person is trying to do it only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that will alleviate them from this tendency to make these false claims. Right? Because it's only for Allah. I don't need anyone to look at it. You know? And uh, may Allah help us to do that. It's very difficult. Sometimes these things are very difficult to do, but they're still important to hear. Because they give us kind of like a standard. This is how we should see things. So, and we can try to adopt them little by little, inshallah. This is one of my favorite quotes, actually, and I totally forgot it was from Junaid. We've mentioned it before here at the Majlis. 
like a challenge to me. Boxing with the microphone or something. Okay. We'll close soon, inshallah. Don't worry. Maybe we'll close when I see the food come. Maybe we won't close soon. We'll see. A man said to him, Junaid, try to take this one to heart. It's a very beautiful one. It's very. Uh, accessible well it's very difficult but it's very accessible still he said a man said to Junaid قَدْ عَزَّ الْإِخْوَانُ فِي هَذَا الزَّمَانِ أَيُّ أَخِنِّي فِي اللَّهِ so he came to Junaid and he said Azza Azza can also mean something that's rare usually people don't like it's not usually uh, the way that people use it now but it can also mean something that's rare so he said it's very rare in this time to find brothers or sisters for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like true brothers and sisters, it's very hard to find them. So he said, where is a brother that I can have for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Like someone I can really have this relationship with them. So what did Junaid do? He turned away from him. It's very interesting. The person said this to him, he turned away. He repeated it, he turned away. He repeated it, he turned three times, he turned away from him. The guy kept repeating it. So then he said to him, if you're looking for a brother who will take care of your burden and be patient with your harm, you know, then it's true, they're rare. Okay? If you're looking for someone to do that for you, then they're very rare. He said, but if you're looking for someone, a, a brother in the sake of Allah, that you will carry their burden, and you will be patient with their harm Then I have a lot of people I can introduce you to Fasekata Rajun It ends with Fasekata Rajun So the guy went quiet What is he saying? He's saying SubhanAllah you'll see this You'll see this in your life If it's always I can't find this thing that I want for me That I need to get from somebody else You'll never find it but as soon as it becomes this thing that I want to get from somebody else, I myself, I'm going to be this thing for somebody else. And we find that we find it. And this is, you know, the Prophet them said this, that Allah is, in the servant of, Allah is in the aid of the servant, as long as the servant is in the aid of their brother or sister, right? And so this idea of like, he's telling him, the man's coming, he's saying, there's no one here, there's no one here, there's no one here. He's turning away from him, it's very severe, right? He just turns away from him. And then finally he responds and he says, if you're looking for someone to do that for you, yeah, it's going to be rare. But if you're looking to do that for someone else, I have a lot of people I can introduce you to them. <laughs> and then also, when you do that for other people, you'll find it, inshallah. Be reasonable in the way that you do that. I'm not, you know, don't be extreme. But, you know, a lot of times if we do that, we find it. So like, okay, what is, what is this thing that I'm looking for that I'm not getting? It's X, Y, Z. And you try to do it. Try to hold that space for someone else. Try to do that for someone else. Try to be in there for someone else. And inshallah, we'll find people who do that for us. Inshallah. <coughs> he also said, Abu Qasim, rahimahullah ta'ala, who is Imam al-Junaid? 
Again, this is one of those things that if you feel overwhelmed, you can focus on this. He said, "Arba'un tarfa'u al-abda ila a'la darajat wa in qalla 'ilmuhu wa 'amaluhu al-hilmu wa tawadu'u as-sakha'u wa husn al-khuluqi wa huwa kamal al-iman." He said that there's four things that will raise the servant to the highest of levels. There are four things that will raise the servant to the highest of levels. Even if their knowledge is limited and their actions are few. It's not only that their knowledge is limited, even their actions are few. Right? So four things. If someone has, they, they will raise the person to the highest of levels even if their knowledge is limited and their actions are few. Number one, al-hilm. Number two, al-tawadu'ah. Number three, al-sakha. And number four, husn al-khuluq. So each one. Hilm. Hilm is like this patient forbearance. Right? It's like the ability to withstand things. It's the ability to withstand things. And of course, whenever you talk about this kind of stuff, people immediately, their mind goes to cases of abuse. Don't let your mind go to cases of abuse. Right? It's not always extreme examples. There's other examples too. Like, for example, if someone is a physician, right? let's say, for example, they're a physician who's required by their uh, system to see an extraordinarily high number of patients every single week. And they're really trying to figure out how am I going to see the number of patients that I have to see and I still want to try and give them their right as much as I can. I want to try to be polite with them, I want to try to be patient with them, I want to attend to them, I want to answer their questions, I want them to feel heard, so on and so forth. For a person to do that, takes a lot of hilm. They have to have some, they have to have some substance to them, you know? Uh, for a person, for example, a counselor, a therapist, sometimes therapists see an outrageous number of clients in a, in a day or in a week, you know? You might see like six, seven, eight, ten people in, in a day. It's too much, right? Like you hear this person has this issue and this person has that issue and so on and so forth. To attend to each one of those with the necessary attention takes a lot of him. For a parent to go and work and deal with all kinds of problems and then they come home and their children have needs and it's very difficult for them to attend to that at that time but they do it anyways, it takes a lot of him. So my point is we don't have to always go to extreme. A lot of times what happens is our minds, we, they immediately go to extreme examples and we ruin the whole thing. We don't take any benefit from the concept because we, we went too far in the extreme. So it doesn't have to be like a super extreme example, but hilm is extremely important. And the prophets were um, described with this quality, right? To do what the Prophet ﷺ did requires a very high level of hilm, right? I'm going to be patient with this person, I'm going to deal with this person, I'm going to have this, I'm going to deal with that, so on and so forth. Like one of our teachers, he said, I think I mentioned this, that the Prophet there's a reason why the prophets were shepherds. Because if you're going to go out in the field, right, you go out, you're by yourself. You face danger. You don't have anyone you can call. The, lion, the wolves are going to come and try to eat your sheep. Your sheep are going to go into random directions, all of this kind of stuff. There's a, there's a constitution that's built through that experience that has this hymn, right? And the shaykh, he told us, he said, and the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, he wasn't a shepherd to sheep only. He was a shepherd to sheep and goats at the same time. And sheep and goats are very different, right? They're very different animals, right? 
It's like being a shepherd to uh, a community that's made of people who are immigrants, who come from their various experiences and have their character traits as a result of it, and people who are raised here. They're very different, like their ways of doing things, their ways of thinking, their way, everything about them is different, right? But you have to deal with both of them. I'm not saying one of them is the sheep and the other one's the goats. It's not the point, don't try to figure it out. <laughs> it's not the different qualities, right? So you need this hymn. Number two is, you need humility. Tawada is humility. Tawada is humility. <clears throat> and you know, it's really hard to find them. And we've bought into a system that doesn't lend to it. You know? it's, and it's, it's really... Uh, it's really unfortunate, honestly. Sometimes I think to myself, like, say you're an imam who's studying now, and you're going to graduate soon. Okay? So, like, when we graduated, we were still at the beginning of this whole nonsense experience that we have now with social media. So, like, nobody was really that popular yet. There were a handful of people that were popular, but for the most part, no one, like, it wasn't that everyone had their own little audience. They were trying to grow it and have followers and all this other kind of stuff, right? You have some qualifications, some people know you, you might get a job, alhamdulillah, you do your job, that's it. Now, if you're graduating now, the masjid's not going to hire you unless you have a following. Because the following is your means to being able to fundraise. But who are you to sell yourself when you're still a student? Like, you really shouldn't have that much to say. Your job actually is to do your job and to work and to do it quietly. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Until you get some wisdom, you get some knowledge, you get some experience, so on and so forth. So the whole system is actually... But then if you don't do that, you can't get a job. So now it's like, it becomes very, like, this whole, the whole situation becomes very problematic, right? But the point is here he's saying, second quality that a person, if they have it, will be of great benefit to them and raise them to the highest of levels, is if they have humility. Have true humility. Okay? Number three is that they have sakha. Number three is that they have sakha. Sakha is generosity. Sakha is generosity. And we always say that generosity is not just a matter of money. Some people actually give a lot of money and they're not generous. Probably some people have met people like that. They give a lot of money and they're not generous at all. It's like they're very stingy actually. And they're very abusive in the way that they give the money. They're very like, they hold it over you. They want things from you. They do all these other kinds of things, right? They think that they control you after that. Well, you know, that's not actually generosity. You can give millions of dollars like that and you're not generous. And someone else gives and they're completely open-hearted. And so when they give, they are giving in a very generous way, right? So this is just money. But there's also generosity of self, right? Sakhawat and nafs. There's a generosity of self that the person is willing to give from their own time. This is so interesting. What's he going to go for? Uh, so they give from themselves and they're okay with that. They give, with them, they give from themselves as much as they can. SubhanAllah. And you know, to be honest, we have a lot of very beautiful people in our community like this. They are really, truly generous people. They give from their wealth, they give from themselves, they give from their time, they give from... MashaAllah, we have a lot of beautiful people like this. Alhamdulillah, we should be grateful for that. 
And if they do that, then that is if they. And then the fourth thing is that they have a husnul khuluq. They have good character. He says, and if they do this, then that's kamal al iman. That's the completeness of faith. He said the completeness of faith is in. What is he saying? The completeness of faith is in hil and humility and generosity and good character. That's it. Do that. If you don't do anything else, do that. We'll do a long time. Hmm? They have complete iman. Well, kamal al iman. Their iman has reached a level of completion uh, or perfection, you know, so on. I'll end on this one, inshallah. This will be the last one. Even if, you know, we're still waiting, we can enjoy one another's company, inshallah. Last one, a man came to, uh, he said, I was with Al-Junaid. And it was mentioned to him that there's these people who sit in the masjid. And when they sit in the masjid, and they're talking amongst themselves they are talking negatively about the people who are in the marketplace right so, <laughs> so essentially they're sitting in the masjid and they're talking negatively about the people who are working right so they're sitting in the masjid and they're talking talking bad about people who are working you see this all the time right people say no these are just people of dunya there's so much dunya all they care about is dunya they're just working all the time dunya but look at us we're in the house of allah there's a claim in it right I'm, mashallah, free from these things and they're not free from these. There's a claim. Anyways, he said, this happened in front of Junaid. He was sitting with Junaid and this happened. There was mention of people who sit in the masjid and they do this. And he said, <coughs> He said, كَمْ مِنْ مَنْ هُوَ فِي السُّوْقِ حُكْمُهُ أَنْ يَدْخُلَ الْمَسْجِدَ وَيَأْخُذَ بِأُذُنِ بَعْضِ مَنْ فِي he said, how many people are in the marketplace? And what the actual situation should be is that they should go into the masjid, take the people who are in the masjid by the ear, take them out of the masjid, and they should sit in their place. What does this mean? And, the, and, the, and there's a comment on the bottom that actually explains it a little bit. He said, basically what this is saying is that there could be some, there are people who are in the marketplace, they're working. And they actually have a right to be sitting in the masjid and teaching. But because they understood the sharia, <laughs> instead of sitting in the masjid and teaching, they went to the marketplace and they worked. Because they knew that was their responsibility. So what, the, what should happen actually is that these people should come into the masjid and take the other people by the ear and throw them out into the marketplace and they should be the ones sitting there and teaching. But because of the rules of the Sharia, they're in the marketplace. So what he's saying is like things are not always what you think they are, right? Like sometimes, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you see this. Like maybe, yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to sit in the masjid all day? Right? Like it would be really nice. A lot of people would probably like to sit in the masjid and spend some time there and read the Quran and worship and so on and so forth. They don't. Not everyone goes to work just because they love money. You know, some people do. They love money. They love power. They love the feeling. It's fine. Some people go to work because they want to provide for their family. Some people go to work because they want to help their kids. They want them to go to good schools. They want them to be able to have things that will make their life more facilitated, so on and so forth. Right? They have good reasons for doing that. So it's not that those people who are in the masjid are better than them. Actually, the people in the, he's saying, basically what he's saying is the people in the marketplace have more right to speak about religion than the people in the masjid. That's what he's saying. It's a very powerful statement. I'll be alone to Anan.
Anyone have any comments or questions or anything they would like to share or bring up? Yes. A little bit louder, please. Sorry. Can you comment on it a little bit more? I understand. I think I understand what you're saying, but I. That's a good question. So sometimes you might be in a community and you're playing certain roles. So if you take on other roles, it creates problems. Um, and this is actually this is one of the big issues. It's one. It's a big challenge actually in community work, especially where people are often wearing multiple hats. So maybe they're wearing they're wearing an administrative hat, and they're wearing an organizer hat, and they're wearing a teacher hat, and they're wearing a counselor hat, and they're wearing all of these different hats. So it becomes really actually difficult, right? Um, so how do you deal with that? Well, I don't really know. But it's nice when you have, when you can have an understanding as a community around these kind of things, and other people can handle certain things that maybe you can't. So, for example, like it's hard for a religious teacher to be an administrator. Because, for example, if you're an administrator, you might have people who uh, report to you at some level and stuff like that and there might be times when you have to hold them accountable and things and lines get very blurry you know um, you know so these things are challenging or like you said maybe someone comes and they're acting in a way that's inappropriate and someone needs to tell them that they're acting in a way that's inappropriate but if you do it then you won't be able to provide spiritual counsel to them most likely because you had to take that on which I think that sometimes, you know, it just has to be done. Sometimes, sometimes there, there are times when an example has to be kind of like... And there are some times when you, you have to do it, and you know that it has a cost, but you had to do it, you know? Um, Allah help us. I don't know that there's much more I can say about that. Allah give us a hikmah. It's hard. It's hard in um, Yes. Thank you. 
Yeah. I don't know if that I'm going to rephrase your question properly, but... Can you say it again? Yeah, so I think, so this is where we get into a bigger thing. So the question is around like, so, you know, the speaker came and talked about exemplars of our time and they were like largely quote unquote Sufi figures, but like, are there other figures who can be more, uh, might be different sorts of examples like Omar Mukhtar and, and um, so now see, this is part of the issue is that when we make the people of Tasawwuf only like this very limited category then we understand them and we see them to be people who like align themselves with oppressive regimes and have political stances we don't like and all this other kind of stuff but in reality it's a lot broader than that so for example you mentioned uh, Omar Mukhtar Omar Mukhtar was a Sufi he was Sanusi right he was he's actually a, I don't know if he was a sheikh of Tariqa or not but he was he was high in a sense like he's he's uh, Sheikh Omar Mukhtar who fought the Libyan uh, freedom who led the Libyan freedom fighting against Italy right so Sheikh Omar Mukhtar was he he was a Sufi so now this is what I'm saying like in our minds sometimes we think of Sufis as being like these people who just are very soft and they don't really take stances on anything and they don't live in the real world almost like borderline this is how this is the the mindset that we have sometimes but it's actually much broader than that, you know. Like so, Omar Mukhtar was legitimately a, a Sufi, um, and it was you know we know what he did. You watch Lion of the Desert, and Amir Abdul Qadir Jazairi, who fought the French in Algeria, led the freedom fighting effort in Algeria, was also a Sufi. He was actually a Sheikh, like on top of it. Like not only you know there's like people who are part of the team, and then there's like the captain of the team, right? <laughs> He's like the captain of the team. Um, Amir Abdul Qadir Jazairi. Same thing with uh, Imam Shamil in Dagestan, who fought the Russians. And they were all the same time period. Imam Shamil in Dagestan was also, his Sufi was Naqshbandi. Amir Abdul Qadir Jazairi was Qadri, and uh, Omar Mukhtar was Sanusi. So like, you have these different figures, but yeah, inshallah we can say more biographies. Imam al like it's, he's a little bit un, not as clear as some figures, but Imam Inouye was, you know, what, what people today would term a Sufi. But Imam Inouye also had significant problems with his political leadership because he refused to give them certain allowances and he refused to eat the fruits in Damascus because he said they were stolen from the land of the Awqaf, of the endowments, so he refused to eat them. And like people took, you know, there's a, there, I guess what I'm, like in the modern period we have one thing, right? But the reality is that if we were to look at most of the big names that we've seen throughout history, you would find that they have some sort of connection to Tasawwuf. And it's not necessarily that they're like, they were part of this Sufi order or that Sufi order. Uh, like the order question, the tariqa question is the second question. Like it, it wasn't always there in Islamic history, you know. Uh, so, you know. but yeah, inshallah. Inshallah we'll try to bring some other examples and things. 
Honestly, the challenge with biographies for me right now is that they take a lot, they take a lot more time to prepare than other subjects. So biographies, you know, you have to sit down and like read a whole book and take notes and, but it would be good to do. And, uh, no, we're not telling people, you don't like, understand by definition, just some different definitions of what is it, what does it mean to take a path, what is to so with? One definition, for example, is Sidq tawajjuh in Allah. Sidq tawajjuh in Allah. Which means to turn with truth and integrity to Allah. That's it. It's not following this, following that, do this, do that. Just be sincere with Allah. This is what about. Another definition is um, uh, To be true with Allah and to have good character with the people. This is what we're talking about in the end. Uh, so, and that might mean you take certain stances, you know. That might mean you get killed. That might mean you get imprisoned. That might mean a lot of different things. Um, that might mean you, you know, go to work every single day and work hard, and just barely get your five prayers in time, and you're taking the path of the soul actually, you know. So we just. Really what we're talking about in the end is just trying to tend to that the inner dimension of our religion at the same time that we have to tend to other things you know? Like can you legitimately be having be in a sincere relationship with Allah and you're oppressing you're part of oppressing Allah's creation It's, it's gonna be an issue, you know, Allah help us But inshallah we'll try to do more biographies Give some more role models for people and stuff, not just one or two. So, yeah. you're raising your hand. Yes. Um, so, in regards to claims, is that mainly only within the capacity of somebody in their own ego or bringing the statement back to themselves, or can it also be within like the realm of like uh, intellectual or, or religious-oriented discourse about certain philosophical positions and so forth within a current period of time? Give me an example, um, please. Harsh critiques of liberalism. Uh, is that a claim? Mm. Yeah. Like, could whatever one is doing, one they're doing, trying to do that, constitute a claim? Because the way it's posited in these writings is more so in perspective. More about the self. Itself, yeah. I mean, the way it's usually in these works, I, I don't know how to repeat his question, but it's basically like, can, is it only, when we talk about claims, is it only about things that relate to the person's self? Or is, can it also be about other things? You know, external issues, ideas, so on and so forth. Usually it's used as an internal thing. There's an there, there's a issue with making like, if you were to use that, like broad strokes of claims on topics, you know? But that's more of like a, sloppy intellectual issue than it is like a spiritual I mean everything's a spiritual issue in the end but it's not you're not making a claim about your own personal relationship with Allah when you do that you're just being lazy intellectually or being uh, you know in a rush something like that Allah forgive us it's hard there's a lot of things uh, you know I, I think that one of the things is also with social media we need to remind ourselves is that we don't have to have an opinion on everything you know, like I'm not required as a human being to have an opinion on everything. And, 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 you know, the thing you realize with time is like, instead of the range of things I have an opinion on becoming bigger, they become smaller, actually. Like, 
There's very few things I can actually legitimately have a solid opinion on. And I, I realized even like with, I was re reading something recently about teaching and school and education and stuff. And I started thinking to myself, like this person who's writing this, they have a certain theory and they're presenting it in their article based on some research that they did and so on. But I doubt they've actually been in a classroom, like in taught, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, okay, you did some research on individual cases, but have you been in the class and taught the same students week after week after week after week to try to see if like, okay, what you're saying right now, does it really hold water as a method that actually works? Probably not, you know? So you realize like a lot of the things that we have strong opinions on, we don't really have much of a business having a strong opinion on, you know? So we have to ask ourselves, if I have a strong opinion on something, what is it based in? And what is it leaning on? Is it leaning on some sort of truth that I can actually hold on to? Or is it leaning on something that I, you know, I'm not really so sure about? What are the consequences of it? Anyways, may Allah help us. Inshallah, the food is here, and I've talked already too much today between now and earlier, and I just feel like going and hiding somewhere. Subhanakum,